Well, good morning. At this time, our children are dismissed uh, for Children's Church, and you guys can all <coughs> remain standing. Sorry about that. I think I might have just swallowed a little hair in the water. Feels good. Um, today, we're going to do something a little bit different in, in, uh, for our scripture reading. Last week, we read all the way through Romans chapter 12, because that's where this series was coming from. And so what we've decided to do over the next four weeks is to ground us in some of the more um, uh, traditional beliefs of the church in order to unify us. So this week we're reading the Apostles' Creed. Uh, next week we're going to do the Nicene Creed. We're going to do creeds so that we affirm that this isn't something that we are just making up. This is something that has been built on the shoulders of generation after generation of people who wanted to be faithful to Christ. So this, the, the words will be in the back, and uh, I just invite you to follow along. Uh, we were going to do a responsive reading, and then I realized that the people at home won't be able to hear it. So, respond in your mind. Follow along in your mind as I read. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified dead and buried. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray together before we open the word. Father, we come before you in this moment and bow to your supremacy. We come before you and acknowledge our great need for a savior. We ask God by your spirit, you would help us to see Jesus high and lifted up as he deserves to be, the ruling, conquering king that we all need. Father, I ask today as we Look in your word about what it means to be a worshiping people and what worship is supposed to look like, that it involves all of us, every fiber of our being, including our bodies. Help us to take that task to hand or to heart. I ask God that you would, by your spirit, awaken us to that reality. Help us to know, Father, that you have called us to things in and through the word and to yourself. God, you are enthroned above all things, and we, we ask that you would bring us in submission to your will and your purposes for this world. We pray it in your name. Amen. Okay, so if you were here last week, you know that we uh, preached a sermon called Rooted in Mercy. This was uh, message number one of five. And so we welcome to West message number two of five. And this week, the message is titled Logical Worship. So last week was Rooted in Mercy. This week is Logical Worship. And we're going very slow through these two verses. And this is purposeful, and we want to spend some time doing that. Uh, but let's just reorient ourselves to what those two verses are in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
So last week, we saw that Paul told us that the Christian life is built on something. We got that from the word therefore. He put the word therefore, which meant we were supposed to look backwards. Romans 1 through 11 gives us the great therefore that we're going to build our life on. So the Christian life or Christian living is not built on our emotions. They're not built on our experiences, not built on our desires. The Christian life is built on something. And Paul goes on to define that and he says, what you're building your life on is the mercies of God. The mercy of God shown to you through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that, believer, you are justified by faith. So, believer, you know that you are reconciled to God. And so, believer, you have the hope of eternal life. We, we drew this illustration that the mercies of God are like water and we're like plants and our roots are meant to saturate deeply in that water. And when our roots are saturated deeply in that water, we become the kind of people that are capable of worshiping God, not only giving, himself, giving ourselves to him, but then also pouring mercy out in the world. And we talked a little bit about what mercy looked like. And the first was that we will only ever understand mercy if we know it personally. So the 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 hope of Christ isn't something that we're supposed to know in abstract. It's a personal reality, and that motivates us. And the second is that as we pour mercy out on other people, we are participating in what Paul said the ultimate goal was in Romans 15, that the Gentiles would praise God for his mercy. So that brings us to today, and we're going to build on all of this. We're going to build and move into the second half of verse 1, and we're going to learn today that before we are the kind of people that are going to pour mercy out in the world, we are the kind of people that need to give ourselves over and worship to God. Okay, so let me say that again. Before we are the kind of people that will pour ourselves out in merciful actions in the world, both in the church and in the world, we need to, we have to be people that give ourselves over to God wholly in worship. And it's essential that we get that correct because if we try to shortcut it and if we try to, without rooting ourselves and worshiping God for who he is through our bodies, through giving us, through giving ourselves to him, our merciful actions won't actually ever be merciful. That's the point. You couldn't be merciful if you first weren't a worshiping person. All that would happen is your actions would ultimately Try to justify yourself before God. But instead, a heart that knows that it is justified already by the gift of faith given by God, you worship God. That flow brings you to loving other people. Okay, so I want to do something a little bit different. I want to get our minds active this morning. It's really easy to come in and hear and listen. So I'm going to ask you a set of questions this morning. And these questions are not hard. I don't, I'm not deceiving you. This is not a trick. And what I want to do is when I ask you these questions, I would like you to answer back to me. Okay? So um, will you answer back to me? This is a good volume. I appreciate it. I'm very excited. Anything you give back to me, trust me, I'm going to give it back to you double. It's a good thing. Okay, so here we go. These are, these are not hard. These are not tricky. What is one plus one? What comes after A in the alphabet? What city is this church located in? Did all of you wake up this morning? No pause there, thank goodness. 
would you rather have $1 in your pocket or $100 in your pocket right now? Okay, now, were those questions easy? These were not hard questions, and that's, that's the goal. I wanted you to be able to get them, and, and just by reflex, you were able to answer them, which is a really good thing. And what I, the reason I did this today is I want to show for you, and I, and I believe that the text lays out in a certain way for us, that what Paul is arguing, namely that we're going to give ourselves wholly and completely to God, our, our response in doing that is the most completely rational and logical thing to do in view of the mercy of God. It's really as simple as one plus one in the Christian life. Have you received? Have you understood? Have you been saturated in the mercies of God? Well, what is the result of that? You give yourself wholly to God in worship. Okay, so I want you to remember that. Now, one plus one. That's a simple equation. It's a simple equation to say, Adam, okay, mercies of God, great. But it's difficult in practice. And that's true. It's very difficult in practice. This is why Paul, right in the beginning, says, I appeal. Right? Right in verse one, he says, I'm going to appeal to you. I'm making an appeal to you. So he is appealing to us to give our bodies, to give ourselves over to God in worship by delighting in his mercies. But somewhere in there, he knows that that's a difficult process. He knows that it isn't as simple as, hey, if I just think about the mercies, then I will be a transformed person. That's not what he says. He has to urge us to view the mercies of God as what they really are, to saturate ourselves in the mercies of God, to experience the mercies of God, to love Jesus, to have a relationship with God. We, we need those things, and he urges us to do that because only when we get that right are we the kind of people that will willingly do the work to give him all of ourselves. And the idea is, church, that's not an easy task. So while the equation is simple, it's difficult to practice. Okay, now you might be wondering, Adam, uh, how, do you, how are you arguing this fact that it's simple? How are you arg arguing the fact that it's logical for us to do this? And, and I'm going to the very end and sort of giving my hand away early about what this is. But if you'll look for me, or with me, in Romans chapter 12, and you look at the very last two words of verse one, you see spiritual worship, okay? So we know, therefore, in view of God's mercies, do something, and the thing that you're about to do, Paul says, is worship, okay? So the actions, whatever it is that we're about to be called to do today, and I'm gonna reveal those for you. I'm, we're going to look at those individually, but it's meant to be worship. And moreover, he qualifies it. He doesn't just say worship. He says spiritual worship. Now that word in its original language is logikon. And Dan will correct me later if I got that wrong, but I did pass it by him. So I know it's right. But here's the idea. That's literally the word logical. Okay, so think about this for a second. Instead of the word spiritual worship, does it make more sense to say, this is your logical worship? 
So he's saying the most logical thing that you can do in view of the mercies of God is to worship him in this way. And we're gonna look at what that is today. Namely, there are three things. The first is present your body. The second is as a living sacrifice. And the third is holy and acceptable to God. But rooted in the fact that he ultimately qualifies all of that by saying it's logical. We're gonna come back to that in a minute, but we're gonna start in the first one. And the first phrase is present your bodies. And now why bodies? Is, is it only that Paul is thinking or has in mind a body? Is it only that, oh, we give God our bodies, but we don't give him our minds? So we only give him the physical, but what is spiritual doesn't really matter? I don't believe that's what Paul has in view. And the reason, one of the main reasons I don't think that's in view is in two weeks, we're gonna say, we're gonna cover the mind. So in these very two verses, it says, not only give your mind, but also you're gonna have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we know that this giving of our bodies or presenting our bodies before the Lord isn't specifically or totally physical. But it's because we really have bodies. Okay, and our bodies are what really contain what we think and what we believe. And here's the idea. Is there anyone in here who believes something different than the way that they're living their lives? The idea is that eventually what you believe and what you think and what you dwell on is gonna work its way out in the body. And don't we know that to be true? What I value the most, what I love the most, what I desire the most at some point in my life is going to express itself through my body. In Romans chapter three, Paul um, he's making this great argument about that there isn't anybody that's righteous before God. And he's saying both Jewish people and both Gentiles, both are unrighteous. Neither of them have the righteousness that God desires. And when he talks about their unrighteousness and how it demonstrates itself in the world, he uses these examples from Psalms and Proverbs that are all physical. So this is what he says in, in, in Romans chapter three. Their throat is an open grave. He gets that from Psalm 5, their throat. They use their tongues to deceive. That's also from Psalm 5. The venom of asps is under their lips. That's from Psalm 140. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's Psalm 10. Their feet are swift to shed blood. That's Proverbs 1 and 3. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's Psalm 36. So what Paul argued already in Romans chapter three is, you wanna know how I know that you practice unrighteousness before Christ? Your body told me. Your feet, your mouth, your hands, your tongues, your lips, all of that is connected to the fact that you were unrighteous. And because of that, every deed that flowed from your body just prove that to be true. This is why Paul in Romans chapter six, in his great, uh, in his, in his great amazing part about being brought from death to life, meaning that we have been freed from the law of sin and death and we have been given over to life in Christ, he says this, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, 
but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So you see that in Paul's understanding and in Paul's view of things, if you've been brought from death to life, your body is going to come along with you. Now, here's the issue. Our body isn't always willing to come along with it. Our minds are being renewed day by day as we look to Jesus, as the Spirit of God brings us renewal in our minds. But our bodies have had years and years of practice in unrighteousness. And the fact of the matter is, our bodies kind of like it that way. This is the idea, right? And so the, the easiest thing to do when we first become believers is almost to segment the mind from the body. We say, in my mind and in my heart, I love Jesus. And in my mind, I wanna follow the gospel. But when it actually comes to doing the gospel, when it actually comes to pursuing righteousness, sometimes it's easy to put a line there and then separate it out to say, well, it's just not possible to live that way. And if I only just believe the right things, then ultimately some of the things that I do, they're not really gonna matter in the end because if I just get it right intellectually, if or I just believe it correctly, ultimately my deeds aren't really gonna matter in the end. But what Paul says and what the Bible says is your body matters. Your body matters for two reasons. Number one, your body is a vessel by which the rest of the world sees what you actually believe. So do you believe that God is the fount of everything? Do you believe that Jesus has purchased you completely in full? Well, you're going to be the kind of person that will give your body over to other people. But are we people that mostly keep our bodies for ourselves? That it's okay for me to believe that I have grace and mercy for myself, but I don't need to show it for anyone else. See, this isn't dualism. The Christian life isn't that the mind is separate from the body. In the biblical worldview, we are one. And our bodies bring forth what is naturally true of us in spirit. Okay, but it isn't just that it's natural and it will automatically happen. It's that as we focus on the right things, Christian, it will bring it about. Again, that's the urging part. I urge you to present your bodies. And now, traditionally, this has worked itself out in Christian circles that I know of in giving your body to God looks a little bit like what we don't do instead of what we actually do. Like where you all have the lists of here's the things that I won't do because I'm a Christian. Here's the things that I stand for because I'm a Christian. Here's the things that I would never participate in because I'm a Christian. And that's true. There's a part in that. There, there, that's, I'm not disqualifying that, but there's two sides of that. We, we present our bodies by what we don't participate in, but we also give our bodies to God by what we actually do, the things that we actually pursue, the ways that we actually love people, and more importantly, the way that we will actually serve God. I think another reason that Paul uses the word body is that in the world that he was speaking into, they thought that the body ultimately didn't matter, that only the spiritual mattered, but the body didn't. And so lots of horrendous 
uh, terrible things were done in the body and they ultimately just let it go because they're like, yeah, that's terrible. My body's, my body's sick. There's nothing I can do about it. The body just wants what it wants, but my spirit is good and that's gonna live on, so that's amazing. And Paul speaks right to them and says, no, 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 that's not how it works. Your, your body matters. And so as a Christian, it is easy, and I've done this multiple times in my life, to rationalize my disobedience through what I'm pursuing in the body by looking at the fact that ultimately, well, I, I know that there's gonna be grace for that. Or I know that I'll be forgiven for that. And so what happens is I end up giving myself half-heartedly to God. Or I end up giving him second best of who I am. And I don't know if that defines anyone else here, but we can justify. It's easy for us to justify sometimes doing that. But Paul says, no, it's a body and it's there for a reason. I think the other reason that Paul ultimately wants us to present our bodies is how else are we gonna bring the gospel to the nations? How else are we going to pour mercy out in a broken and harsh world? And through our bodies, we sing praises to God. And, and the list can go on and on and on. And so two application points before I move on from this. The first is we are never going to be people who are only being redeemed inward with no external transformation. We are never meant to be people that are being renewed only inwards with no external transformation. God is after all of us. So body, body as well. And second is our bodies express internal realities that are true of us. So we do not use the body to try to make something true of us. We don't use our deeds to try to get God to see us. We know that we already have the righteousness of Christ. And so because of that, that is the motivation for giving ourselves away to God. And now Something that I think is really important about this section is that everything is meant to bring up the imagery of a worshiper at the temple. We're supposed to have in mind this idea of the Old Testament sacrificial system. That's what I think about having a body or presenting. The word present, a, a follower of God, when they would go to the temple, would present something to God. There would literally be a physical object in an animal. Right, you would present a present something to God, and that had to be conditioned. There were conditions that God wanted, namely that they had to be without without spot and without blemish, and they had to be alive. You couldn't bring an already dead sacrifice to the temple; it had to be alive in the moment. And so, when we say bring a body, living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is sort of the imagery that we need to have in our minds. Because we actually bring something to God. It isn't that we just believe the right things about God, but we actually bring something to God. So the idea is that we are the kind of people who are willing to give God all of us no matter what he asks. And listen, there are lists in the Bible about things that your body should and should not be doing. If the Bible says you shouldn't do this with your body and continually day after day you do those things with your body, what are you proving? You're proving that you're not willing to be obedient in the body. So no matter what you're doing, it's not really worship. 
God is after a heart that worships him, longs for him, and will willingly give of their time, their resources, who they actually are, their physical bodies. So let's move on from there. That's the present your body part. Let's move on to the living sacrifice piece. It continues the imagery of temple worship through the words living sacrifice. And, and the reason I think that is Paul has in multiple different places this sort of idea. In 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 19 and 20, he says, your body is a, a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were purchased by God, therefore offer your body to him. As this is that whole, that temple sacrificial system working out in Paul's theology. And then in Romans 15, 16, he says that he himself is a minister of Jesus Christ and he's acting as a priest to the Gentiles so that their offering might be acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So this idea of offering, acceptance, sacrificing, our bodies being involved is not exclusive to Romans. This works itself out with Paul over and over and over again. So the idea is we're meant to have in mind a sacrifice. Well, what kind of sacrifice? If we're supposed to present our body in some way to God, and it's as a living sacrifice, does it mean, like most of us in here, when we think about the sacrificial system, we think about a sin offering. We think about an animal needing to take our place. We think about somebody bringing an animal, it being slaughtered, its blood being spilled on the altar, and it being a substitute in our place. And this is not what I think Paul has in mind. Namely, because he's already argued that Jesus has already offered himself for sin. So I don't think when, when he says living sacrifice, I don't think we're supposed to have in our minds that we're the kind of people who continually need to be uh, paying God back so that we won't be punished. We're not the kind of people who will just continually need overall forgiveness for our lives. We've been given forgiveness already completely and totally in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 12 says that Jesus offered a single, one-time sacrifice for sins and is now seated at the right hand of God. So the idea isn't this, uh, this daily needing to be like, I'm the most terrible person in the world. Couldn't you only forgive me right now? That's not the idea. I think what Paul has in mind is the idea of a thank offering. And in a thank offering, what you would do is you would bring your first and your best you would bring your first and your best. You would take not only the animal that looked the healthiest, you would take the one as the, that's the most vibrant, you would take the one that has no blemish at all, you would take the one that is the strongest, the fittest, and you would give it to God as an offering of thankfulness. It would be laid on the altar, and ultimately it would go away. So I, I think that giving God our best as an expression of, of this gratitude is what Paul has in mind. He has in mind that you and I are like those animals. We're meant to be presented alive to God. We're meant to be presented as those who are pure and blameless, those who are pursuing holiness. Now I think when we see the word sacrifice, what happens a lot of time is we think that that means involving giving up something for God. 
right? We, we think about a sacrifice. We think about um, some, they had to lose something or maybe we have to lose something. But in the sacrificial system, the worship of God in that way wasn't about losing it something. It was about expressing something towards God. So we have that in our mind that when we give God ourselves, we're not losing something, we're expressing something towards him, namely that we are thankful and we, are, we have gratitude in our hearts. And here's why I think that, because there are multiple occasions in the Old Testament scriptures where people were giving sacrifices according to the law the right way. They were giving sacrifices that were without blemish. They were giving sacrifices that, were, that were, should have been acceptable according to the written standard, but God wasn't pleased with it. I can think of specifically in the book of Amos where people said, if you have to give one goat or one sheep, that's cool. I'm gonna give two. And they started to use sort of their giving God more and giving, them, giving even more than what was prescribed, they used that as some sort of like stepping stool to be like, man, we really, we've really got something going on. We're really getting it together. But in Amos 5, God says this, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offering of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The idea is they were giving God what they were supposed to according to the written law. But what was painfully absent was their actual desire to serve and love God. Right, so when, when Paul has in mind, give a body, make it a living sacrifice, it isn't just that we offer God what's physical. It's that we are totally and completely giving ourselves over in worship. That means desires, heart. We, we want to see God glorified. And we're worshiping him because we actually love him. Isaiah has another reference, and I'm just gonna skip that for now. But in both of the pictures, both in Isaiah and Amos, God's not pleased with the bringing of sacrifices in and of themselves. And it's not because the animals themselves weren't holy and acceptable, but it's because the giver of them was participating in vain worship. So I think the connection with sacrifices means that we're never meant to be a people who only offer up the deeds of our body as worship to God, but it's always connected to the heart of the one who gives it, which is why I believe Paul is using this imagery to express that a living sacrifice means to be fully at God's disposal, to be a remembering worshiper, and to be willing to obey God with our bodies. To be fully at God's disposal and to be willing to obey. Willing to obey when we read things in the word that are difficult. Willing to obey when we know, when we know beyond a doubt what we should and shouldn't do, but our bodies war against us. To be the person that prays to have the boldness 
and the courage to live in the world and live in our families and live in our communities and live actually with myself with the integrity that I know is necessary. And now here's what's interesting. Living, sacrifice. Living means that this idea of presenting our bodies to God isn't a one-time event. It's not a single event where we say in fifth grade or we say when we were 35, today is the day that I choose to live for you, God, and today I put my faith in you, and today I have salvation, and I never think about it again until I'm 85 on my deathbed, and I think, did that count? Did that work? Was that enough? The idea of living, the reason he has living is it's meant to be continual. It's something that we give to God over and over. It isn't good enough to have a single day where we say, God, you have my body. The idea is continually, day by day, we reorient ourselves to the mercies of God and because of them, we say you are worthy of not only my affection, but who I am. My body, my house, my money, everything that you've given to me, I'm willing to bring it into subjection to your kingdom, for your purposes, for your glory. That's living, continual. But then you have this word sacrifice. Sacrifice means killing. So what is he saying? Living, killing? Living, killing. How does that work? Like what, what does he mean here? This is what I think it means. Jesus tells us in Luke, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So you see, Paul is not making this up out of thin air. Paul has been informed through the Gospels. Paul has been informed through Jesus. This isn't a new concept that day by day we give ourselves sacrificially to God. Jesus is the one who told us that. Jesus is the one who said, do you want to follow me? Do you want to come after me? Then pick up your cross what is the cross other than an instrument of death? So he's saying, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? You live to die. You, you're, li you're, you're participating in a living killing. That's by and large what being a Christian is involved in. Day by day, giving myself over to God. So that it isn't me who lives, it isn't me who reigns, but it is God who reigns. And can I tell you something? That's super hard. If you've been a Christian here for any amount of time, you know how hard it is. Can I tell you, I know how hard it is. Every day, waking up and remembering and pausing and taking a moment to say, I am who I am today and I am where I am today and the spiritual things that are true of me, in that I'm being renewed day by day, in that I have an inheritance waiting for me, in that I now currently have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, all purchased by Christ that's true of me today, so I can live this way. But here's the issue. Paul told us, I urge you to look at the mercies because it's very easy for us to get distracted. 
It's very easy for us to live not looking at the mercies of God because this life can be sometimes so pervasive and so overwhelming and the emotions that we feel or the desires that we have or the things that we're working on can become so much that we are dulled to the mercies of God, which is why Paul implores us, look to them, look to them. The equation is simple. The actual living it out is hard. In view of God's mercy, give everything to him. That makes a ton of sense. But what does he say? Present your body, and by the way, make it a living killing. Do it every day. Die to yourself more and more. Let's move on. That's present your bodies, and then we have living sacrifice, and then holy and acceptable. So the only worship that God will view as holy and acceptable is that which flows from a heart that rests in Christ. We can't make our conduct holy on its own. And that doesn't mean that we don't pursue holiness in our lives. The exact opposite is true. We should pursue holiness in our lives, but we pursue holiness in our lives because we are justified, not because we're trying to justify ourselves before God with our conduct. So this idea of holiness, this idea of acceptability, it continues the sacrificial imagery. Every animal that was presented had to be without blemish. It had to be holy, which means it needed to be set apart. That's what holy means. You're living a set-apart life. You're setting yourself apart. Now, what, what, is it, what could it mean that we're setting ourselves apart from? Well, for me, in part, I think it's the world. The reason I think that is next week, the message is called, don't be conformed. So the immediate thing he's gonna say after, worship God in this way is, don't be conformed by the world. So this idea of being set apart, one of the things that we might say about that is, the nature of being a Christian and worshiping God in this way shouldn't look like how the world worships money or sex or any of the other things that are there. This should be a quality so much different. This is a set apart. This is a difference. And this could only come from a heart that is regenerate and renewed by Christ. See, for a Christian, it's the gospel that frees us to live lives that please God. Let me say it this way. We can only please God with our lives and when we live knowing that he is pleased with us through Christ already. It's the only proper motivation. Again, mercies of God, therefore, Romans 1 through 11. And this isn't easy to live this kind of life. It isn't easy to live the kind of life that's set apart. Paul says in Philippians 3.12, not that I've already obtained this or already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had, has made me his own. Paul put effort. He pressed on. He moved forward. He gave his life daily to the Lord. Why? Because Christ Jesus already made him his own. But the effort was there. He says also in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself shall be disqualified. Paul is an apostle. I mean, I read the works of Paul and I think he's more or less got it together. And what does he say? I have a need to discipline my body. I have a need to keep it under control. 
I have a need to pursue life this way. And he's not saying that because, oh, I have to live that way in order to be saved. No, he knows that he is. He tells Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. Effort. Lots of it. Being set apart for God, being holy. We cannot of ourselves set ourselves apart. We couldn't produce that. We couldn't produce this holy that God wanted without him. It means we already have his approval. That's what's interesting. Holy and approved by God, we have his ultimate approval. Galatians 3, 25 through 27 says that we, because of Jesus Christ, can already be called sons of God because all who have been baptized in Christ have literally put on Christ. So when God sees us, what can we be seen as already? Sons of God. What are we seen as already? Justified. And because of that, we can live a life that is set apart. So our running, our effort, our fighting, our pursuing this with pain is proof that Christ, who ran his race and fought his fight and endured his cross, is alive and real in our hearts. Present a body, living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. It's not easy. It's what we're called to do. And then the final phrase, and we talked about it already, which is your spiritual worship. And now I already told you that spiritual is logicon, logical. So in light of God's mercy towards us in Christ, offering our whole selves to him is the most logical thing you can do. Another way to say it is, the only logical response to the mercies of God shown to us through Christ Jesus is to make our lives a continual sacrificial offering to him. That's worship. That's what God tells us that worship is, a continual sacrifice to him. Anything less than that isn't worship. So I have to have, a, I have, to have just a couple questions. Does that mean that not giving yourself over to him in this way is irrational? I think so. I think the most illogical thing that can ever be done in the world is when a Christian who has been saved by grace who has been rescued by Christ, gives half-hearted and partial worship to God. What Paul says is, you wanna know what's illogical? Somebody who is living their Christian life without the mercies of God, present without the reality that they are saved and chosen and redeemed and are going somewhere and are allowing some sort of counterfeit motivation to propel them forward. That's illogical. It's irrational, Christian, to live that way. 
You don't, you don't wanna do it. And so when we give ourselves half or when we aren't giving our best or when we aren't giving ourselves to fully, what that means is you simply aren't thinking clearly. The math is right. It's one plus one equals two, but somewhere in our mind, we've got that mixed up. Somewhere in our minds, we got the math wrong. So is this true of you? Is it true of me? And it has been true of me, by the way. We're simply not thinking correctly. We are not looking at who Christ is and what he's done. We're failing to remember the mercies of God. If we're allowing some concern, some worldly motivation, whether it be anger, lust, greed, pride, add in whatever you want, if we're allowing that to control us other than God, we're simply being irrational and illogical. So if you're here today and that defines you, let me encourage you to spend some time today to reorient yourself to the mercies of God. Notice, I'm not gonna hit you hard with guilt. Not my job, not my goal to make you leave here and be like, oh, I must not really be saved. No, Paul was writing to people who were saved and he's saying it's possible that saved person, you just might be thinking fuzzy. You might just not be getting it correctly. And that might be true of us in here too today. That might be exactly where we are. So think of the amazing work of Christ in your life. Focus on those things. I urge you in view of God's mercy to present your body as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. So I have a couple questions for you real quick. What's one plus one? What comes after A? What city is this church located in? Did y'all wake up this morning? Would you rather have a dollar or a hundred? And what are we to give God in light of his mercy and grace shown to us through Jesus Christ? What is the single offering that God wants from us? You said it, not me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you, God, that we are allowed to look backwards at what you've done. We're allowed to today know who you are. By your very spirit, you are awakening us day by day to the realities of who we are and who we're called to be. And God, we have a hope for the future. Those mercies, the reality of who you are propels us. And I ask God that you would give us the courage, you would give us the boldness, you would give us the resolve to give you all of us, even the parts that are hard, even the parts that require effort. Help us to love you and worship you that way because it's your glory that's at stake. May we be found faithful. We pray it in your name. Amen.